team, you can go ahead and be seated, and it's good to see you today. Uh, welcome to Crossroads Church. Uh, by chance, anybody in the service catch the sunrise this morning? Oh my goodness, wow, like majestic, breathtaking. I just got here early, it was at 6.15, that's when the sunrise happened in case some of you slept in. Anyways, uh, I got here early in the morning and I just sat up on the hillside and just looked. I mean, the vibrancy of the sunrise just reminded me of Psalm 19 that tells us that the skies or the heavens declare, they shout of God's glory and the skies show of his handiwork. And what I was so fascinated about is I was just sitting there looking at the sunrise this morning as I was like, man, creation is worshiping the creator. And today we get the opportunity to join with all of creation in worshiping our God. That's what this hour is about. It's about experiencing God. It's about bringing our worship to God through song, through the opening of his word, through communion. And so that's what today is really all about. If you're new with us, I do want to say welcome to you. Uh, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And today we are in uh, week two of a series that we are calling Faith Misunderstood where we are really looking at the common ways that we approach God. And in these ways, they oftentimes leave us like we are, like we, we are kind of struggling through the dark, like we're living in the shadows and, and really struggling to experience this, this beautiful life that can be had with God that's promised to us in the scriptures. That's really what this series is all about. It's about how we approach God when we only partially see who he is and how ultimately many of those times or many of those ways leave us longing for more in a relationship with him. And so last week when we gathered together, we looked at an approach that we just simply called the genie in the bottle. And the genie in the bottle approach is just as it sounds. We view God as a genie. We rub the bottle vigorously. We uh, hope that he will appear kind of like in the smoke and, you know, in the magic. And when he arrives, that he will give us the deep desires of our hearts. It's an approach that's really based on God's blessings and, and, what, and the gifts that he gives, but not so much on God himself. In fact, what we discovered last week is that this world or this, uh, this approach to God is really born out of a worldview of consumerism. Uh, this consumeristic worldview that has just totally inundated our culture, that has influenced all of us to the point that even in our sp uh, faith journeys, that we view the value of God or we see God's value based totally on his usefulness and therefore a relationship with God is nothing more than a means to an end to achieve, to achieve what we desire most. And what we saw last week is that while this approach begins feeling like freedom, that it ultimately always ends in misery where we are longing for more, where we want more. And so that's the genie in a bottle approach. This week, we're going to look at a, a second approach that we often find ourselves in when we, are, when we are coming to God, when we only see God partially. And this week, we're calling the approach the command giver, where we relate to God primarily as the command giver. Now, when it comes to this approach, this approach is really based kind of in performance. It's all about obedience. That, that is a performance-based system where I'm obedient. And here's what I believe when it comes to this approach. Here's how I would say it is that if I do all of the good things and none of the bad things, then I will be favored. I will be loved by God and, and he will give me his blessing. But if for some reason bad things are happening to me, it's because I've done something wrong. And those who have done something wrong are not favored by God. They're not loved by God. In fact, they are cursed. Listen, if there is one approach that has absolutely permeated 
the Christian faith culture of America, it is this one. It's this one. For example, I can't tell you how many discussions the pastoral uh, team has had with struggling parents who look at us in complete despair because of a wayward child. And they say something to us like this, like, like I, I, I don't understand. I don't know what went wrong. I don't know what, what went wrong. We made sure that our, that our kids went to church. We raised them with the Bible. We instilled morals into her. We honored God in our home. We raised our children based off the book of raising children God's way. I mean, it was not supposed to happen this way. We see this approach in the sports world uh, all of the time, maybe most significantly uh, Steve Johnson, if you remember him, he played for the Bills about a decade ago, so ago. He was a wide receiver. He was a man of faith. And during one game, the Bills went into overtime, and he had an opportunity to win the game by catching a touchdown. And it went through his hands. The touchdown slipped through his hands. It ultimately cost the Bills the game. And afterwards, he publicly wrote this, God, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? I'll never forget this, Ever or maybe even a little bit closer to home. For many of you, you know our great CEO, Angie. And uh, a couple of years ago, when her husband, Nick, was uh, diagnosed or had, actually wasn't just diagnosed, he had COVID and he was on the verge of death. Literally at points we were, we were planning what it would look like for, life to no longer, for his life to no longer be here with us. And during that time, as we, as we tried to, you know, move through that time, there were people in this church who would come up to me, who would write to me, and they would say, Angie is, is such a good woman. She is such a good Christian woman. She works for the church. How could God ever allow this to happen to her? Maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've felt this in your own life. Maybe you've lived this. Like when things are going good, you know, you go, man, I must be living right. And when things go bad, you're going, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? I mean, come on, we, we kind of believe that if I do all the good things, then God's favor, his love, his blessing is upon me, and those who don't, they're cursed, right? I mean, I mean, that's the way that this is all supposed to work, right? And we see this approach throughout the scriptures. We see this approach in Job, when Job is a man who has lost literally everything. He, he loses his wealth, he loses his kids, he loses his wife, and there he is left in his despair, and his four best friends come around him, and they're all kind of sitting around the fire, and they look at him, and they go, Job, man, there must be some sin in your life. Man, you must be doing some things bad for God to treat you like this. Or the story of Jesus and his disciples. You know, one day they're walking through the town and they walk past this guy who's been blind his entire life and the disciples kind of casually look at Jesus and they go, what did this dude do wrong? What did he do wrong to be cursed like this by God? Maybe the most significant story that we see this played out in the scripture is in a story that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bible, by the way, you can go ahead and turn there. It's a story of a parable that Jesus tells that we call the prodigal son. And while we call this story the prodigal son, really it's a story about the older brother. See, when we open up the, the beginning, when we open up to the beginning of Luke chapter 15, there's some important details that were given that help us understand the story of the prodigal son. Those details go like this, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he's eating with them. Now, just so that you know, in this time, during this culture, in this culture, that when 
tax collectors were mentioned, tax collectors are what we would call turncoats. They were Jewish people who went and worked for the Roman Empire. The, Roman, the Romans were enemies of Jews. So tax collectors, they were bad. Everybody knew that they were bad, and nobody in Israel liked them. And then you have these sinners. And, and this term doesn't mean that there are people who are sinners and people who aren't sinners. Sinner here is the label that's used for flagrant, open sinners. You know, the foul mouths. The ones who cheat. The ones who, who sleep in all the wrong places with all the wrong people. Those who wouldn't even dare to darken the doors of a place where God is worshipped. Those, those were the sinners and they stood opposite of everything that a good, uh, good Jew stood for. And everybody knew them that way. And so you have the, the tax collectors and the sinners, and they're getting close to Jesus, and they're drawn near to Jesus, and Jesus is sitting there, and he's eating dinner with them. He's, he's, he's eating with them, and the Pharisees and the scribes are on the other side of the, of the religious spectrum. These are the experts in the law. They're the ones who know the commands. They're the most religious, most rigorous command-keeping people in the Bible. And they're looking at Jesus, and they're watching all this going down, and they're looking at him, and they're basically asking this question, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, you know who these people are, don't you? These are tax collectors and sinners. What are you doing eating with them? Because the only thing that Jesus could be doing in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes was compromising, you know, taking sin lightly, not being rigorous enough in, in his holiness. That's the setup for the story that will ultimately reveal to us what it looks like to approach God as a command giver and how it ultimately leaves us wanting. And so all of chapter 15 is Jesus answering this question that the Pharisees and the scribes are asking him. And he does so by sharing three parables with them. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Now, just in case you missed last week, the story of the prodigal son goes like this. There were two brothers, and the youngest of the brothers came to dad and said, Dad, I'm going to live life on my own. I'm going to live life the way that I want to live, and I want all of my inheritance, and I want it now. I want my blessing. I want my portion of the wealth, and I don't really care if I have you. And surprisingly, in the story, the father gives him what he asked for. And the younger brother goes away, and he, he spends all of the blessing, a blessing that was intended to set him up for a lifetime of well-being. He squanders it on wild living. And as he's sitting in the mud eating pig food, he comes to his senses. And he says, goodness, <laughs> it's better to be a servant in my father's house than to sit here eating food with the pigs. I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna see if dad will take me back, even if it's just simply as a slave. And so as the story plays out, the younger brother's coming over the hill and the dad sees him. And in his excitement, he goes running towards his kid and he embraces him, he kisses him. And as the younger brother begins to, to, you know, begins to grovel and apologize and present his plan to his dad, his dad completely ignores him and says, bring out the best of the rubs, fire up the grill, get the meat, we're going to party. Because my son who is lost is now found, the one who is dead is alive. And a celebration begins because of the restoration of this kid back into the family, not as a slave, but as a son. I mean, it's this powerful, powerful story of a young man who approached God 
as a genie in the bottle, how it left him wanting for more, and how he found his way back into relationship with God. And Jesus uses the first part of the story. He uses the first part of the story to depict the tax collectors and the sinners. He uses the first part of the story, and he says, look, Pharisees and scribes, that's why I'm eating with them. I know who they are. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, as the second act of the parable begins, we have an older brother, and he's watching all of this take place. And in light of the setup in chapter uh, 15, verse 1 and 2, the story becomes clear about the point of it. That as the older brother is, is walking back to the house, here's what happens, verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your, your brother's come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now, if you did not know the story, your expectation, your anticipation would be that the older brother would go running to the house, that he would embrace his younger brother, and he would say, man, glad to have you back. You were lost, and now you're home. Like, there would be this excitement in the older brother. That's what we would expect. But that's not what happens. Instead, Luke 15, 28 says that as he returned to the house, he was angry, and he refused to go in. See, when the older brother hears from the servant that his brother has come home and, and dad's throwing him a party, he is moved to anger. He is furious that his younger brother is being reinstated by his dad. And so he refuses to go into what probably is the grandest, biggest feast that his dad has ever thrown. He walks to the porch. He sits himself down in the rocker, refusing to go in, demanding that his father comes out to him. And as we watch this all take place, there's something here in the story that we can feel, isn't there? There's something wrong here. The son has a relationship with his father, but there's something distorted, there's something dysfunctional in the way that the older brother relates to his dad. Verse 28. He was angry and he refused to go in, but his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your commands and yet you never gave me a young goat. You never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son, not my brother, when this son of yours comes home who has devoured your property with prostitutes, that prostitutes, you light up the grill, you kill the fattened calf for him. I mean, we can just feel the fury of the older brother, can't we? And it's in his fury that he begins to reveal clues about what he has him so bothered, what has him so upset. He says, look, all these many years, I've served you. I mean, imagine just for a moment what the father must be feeling as he hears his son say this to him. I mean, son, son, why are you even using that kind of language? Why are, why are you depicting the relationship that we share as, as a slave master? I'm, I'm, your, I'm your father. 
Why are you talking that way? Why are you, why are you looking at me that way? I'm not like that. What's going on here? What's, what's wrong? I've never treated you as a slave, have I? And the older brother goes on. He says, I've never neglected one of your commandments. As if the older brother is saying, all you are is a command giver, dad. That's what you are. You're a command giver. And I measured up. And your son, he didn't. Come on, dad. You give commands. I've kept them all. I've killed myself. You know, I've put myself. I've worked so hard. I've worked to death for you, earning every bit of my blessing. And that worthless son of yours, that worthless son of yours, he's done nothing to merit this kind of extravagance. Where's the justice in that? Have you ever been there? In the place of the older brother? I mean, when you hear the older brother say that I've served you all of my life, that I've kept all of the commands, and you never gave me a goat, you never gave me that kind of blessing, is there something that raises up in your soul and go, He's, that's legit. He's got a legit gripe. If you feel that way, may I cautiously suggest that you may be relating to God as a command giver. Now, let me pause and say that when it comes to the commands of God, they are important. The commands that we have in Scripture are important. Obedience is important. I mean, Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, certainly it's apparent from, uh, from Jesus' words that obedience is important. There's no such thing as no Lord. In fact, Jesus goes on and he teases this a little bit more out for us in verse 49. He says, but the one who hears my commands and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The destruction was great. James, the younger brother of Jesus, many years later, reflecting back on these words that his brother spoke, said this, that we are to be doers of the word. That is, that we are to be doers of the commands that we find in scriptures. That we are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And if we are hearers only, then we deceive ourselves. See, in a real sense, a person's soul hangs in the balance regarding his joyful obedience or his willful disobedience. Because obedience is the evidence of a life saved by Jesus. That obedience is the evidence of a life saved by Jesus. But listen, if the commands become the entirety of how we relate to God, if the commands become primary over the relationship, if we believe that it is through our moral conformity that we maintain our place in God's economy, that is his love, his favor, and blessing, then we are nothing more than the Pharisees. Nothing more than the Pharisees. And we will miss, just like they did, we will miss God's love in spite of our goodness, not because of it. And it will not be, it will not be our moral wrongdoing that keeps us from our Heavenly Father, but our self-deceived righteousness that believes that my work is the basis of my salvation. 
And when we primarily relate to God in this way, what we say is, Jesus, I don't need your death on the cross. You can keep your grace. You can keep your mercy. I'll handle my sin on my own. And God says, okay, I will let you handle your sin on your own. And maybe what is the most intense part of this story is how often, even as a pastor, I find myself in the shoes of the older brother. I have to fight every single day against my Pharisee hearts. Because I'm telling you, commands make me tick. Measuring up makes me tick. And I know I'm not alone. See, what happens when when we relate to God, primarily as a command giver, it pushes you to compare yourself against others. And you feel it intuitively. I worked, they didn't. I should get, they should not. Call it karma, destiny, whatever. Those who live right are favored and loved and blessed by God, and those who don't are cursed. And maybe what is most remarkable about this story is the way that the father responds to the older brother. In chapter 15, verse 28, his father came out to him, came out on the porch to him and entreated him. Do you know what the word entreat means? It means to woo, to invite, to exhort. And I cannot help but think that Jesus very specifically chose this word because of its stark comparison to the word commanding. I mean, at this point in the story, the father has every right to command his older son, doesn't he? I mean, he's throwing the biggest party of his lifetime. It's a celebration because his young son has come home. I mean, everything is going on. And here he has this son who is pouting, who is grumbling out on the porch, refusing to go in, making it all about him and not about what's going on in the feast. And dad has to come out. And if there was a point ever where dad, I mean, come on, dads, we know this, right? If there was ever a point where dad could command, it was right here. My son, you get up and you get in there. He's saying he's sorry in this family. We forgive. You get in there. You put a smile on your face. Or, right? I mean, we know that the father at this moment has every right to command his son, and yet he does not. He entreats him. He woos him. He invites. He exhorts. He is longing and aching and yearning and pleading I'm not going to command you, son. I'm pleading with you. Would you please come in? Would you come into the feast? Would you come and enjoy the party? See, the father in the parable doesn't come out to the porch commanding his son because he's not after performance here. He's not after performance. He's not after right external behavior. He's after a relationship with his son. He looks at his boy in verse 31, and he, he says to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. I mean, everything that I have, it's yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. I mean, there's a significance in these words here. Do you see what Jesus is doing when he says you are always with me? That the younger son discovered that if I could just be home with my father, If I could just be home with dad, I mean, even as a servant, if I could just be home with dad and not eating pig food, if I could just come home to the one who cares about me more than anyone else in this entire world, I would give anything. I would give anything to be home with dad. And in this poignant moment, 
the contrast is so stark. As the father pleads with his older son and says, you are always with me. And right here in the parable, right here in the parable, it is made so apparent to us that the deepest void in the older brother's hearts is that he lived in the house with the father and yet he was quite unsatisfied. That he had all of the privilege that every night he got to eat with the father. That everything that the father had was his, that he was the heir. And yet he was not happy. He did not love being with his father. He did not love his father. It's the place, it's the place where all those who relate to God as a command giver end up that we go to the Father's house and we're not happy. We live out the commands and we find life so unsatisfying. We eat and commune with the Father and yet it does not move us. Jesus ends this parable, and he does so in the most unthinkable way. The older brother sitting in the rocker is out on the porch as the father goes back into the party. And the bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son does not. The repentant lover of prostitutes is saved, and the morally upright is not. Talk about turning everything that we think we know upside down. I mean, we can hear the gasps of the Pharisees some 2,000 years later. Everything they thought they knew. Tim Keller in his great book, The Prodigal God, writes this. He says, if, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus, well, Jesus may be your helper. He might be your example, even your inspiration, but he's not your savior. You're serving as your own savior. See, every single one of us defines sin basically in the same way. It's breaking a list of commands. It's, it's breaking a list of rules. But what Jesus does in this story is he shows us that a man who has violated virtually none of the list of moral mis misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just about breaking God's commands. It's about putting yourself in the place of God. It's positioning yourself as the Savior. It's why Jesus went head to head with the Pharisees. It was the biggest issue between him and the Pharisees, that the Pharisees were blind that they did not get, they did not understand that lying beneath their moral goodness was a desire to be their own savior, to be their own God. See, for those of us who, who only see God as a command giver, what you have done is you have rebelled against the Father. And what you deserve is to sit out on the porch of hard-earned merits alone and miserable. Hear the Father entreating you. 
Hear the woos and the invites and the plea of your heavenly Father to come in to the feast. To admit your sin of self-righteousness and to receive the forgiveness of the true Savior, Jesus. See, it was he who drank from the cup of eternal justice so that you and I could drink from the cup of the Father's joy. Jesus says to all of the elder brothers, to all of us with a Pharisee's heart, to every single one of us, who tries to work our way into the favor of God. Come off the porch of hard-earned merits and come to the feasts. If you'd like a conversation about what that looks like, I want to invite you to text the name of Jesus to our text number 720-513-1933. Will you pray with me? Father, I imagine for many of us like me that this passage comes with such conviction. To think how many times I've walked in the shoes of the older brother, seeing if I measure up. And yet the reality of the gospel is that only one person was good enough, kept the commands well enough, did all the laws, was perfect. And that person went to the cross so that I could experience the opportunity to come off the porch of hard merit and into the feast of heaven. God, I pray for all the older brothers in the room. Lord, that we would be able to admit our sin of self-righteousness, thinking that we can earn it on our own. And that today, we would fall into your arms. That we would hear your pleas. That we would see your invitation. And we would be moved by your love. God, I thank you for these tender words. The way you use them to impact hard, hard hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We come around communion today as an opportunity to eat with our Heavenly Father. That it was around a meal that Jesus took his disciples and said, I want you to remember me. Remember that it was my body broken so that you might have life. And so today we remember.
through the blood, Jesus said, I have tasted the cup of eternal justice, that God's wrath poured out on the perfect one so that today we could experience the cup of joy from our Father. continue in our worship. If you need prayer, whether that be confession or a request, we'd love to meet you right at that sign back there that says prayer online. You can click the button. But I'm going to invite you to stand as we continue to sing the great praises of our God who loves us, who wooed us, who entreats us into the party with him.